Well, today we're going to be considering that statement, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, specifically these words, maker of heaven and earth. I want to begin by just stating a, a few things about this. You know, there is a, a book written by G.K. Chesterton called Orthodoxy that was extremely influential for me. And one of the things that he points out that made the gospel so personal was his acknowledgement that when he when he was on his journey to faith, uh, he experienced this awe and wonder at creation. And he said, he said, I looked around and I saw that the world seemed to be telling a story, that history seems to be telling a story. And if it's telling a story, there must be what? A storyteller, an author. He said, it seemed to me that the world is full of magic. And if the world is full of magic, there must be, and for some of you who don't like the idea of Christianity and magicians being linked together. I think it's kind of cool. He said, if the world is full of magic, then there must be a magician. And I think that there's something very profound about that, that statement. But, but for us, when we think of the scriptural narrative of God as the creator of all that is, I think it's important in the beginning, that, and I like what Chesterton does, is he makes it very personal to talk about creation in terms of a story that is being told. Because often you hear Christians trying to make scientific statements about the origins of the universe uh, from the scriptures. And it's actually not helpful, nor, it is, nor is it the intent of the scriptures. For the scriptures themselves uh, are, are a revelation of God's personal redemptive history. In fact, when Moses gave to the children of Israel the Torah, he wasn't giving to them an explanation of how things came into being. He was giving them their own cosmology, showing that the God that they worship, the Lord, Yahweh, was the one who brought order out of disorder, who is the creator above all things, and that he wants to enter into covenantal relationship with them. It's always relational. And I think that we must start at that Place because if we don't, we can lose ourselves as we begin to st as we study the creed and we dive into the the doctrine of God. Um, it can become very qu very quickly esoteric. And believe me, I read hundreds of pages this week on the doctrine of God as creator of heaven and earth. And even I was t I had to wake up early this morning just to subtract about 14 pages of notes because there's so much that can be said about it. And at the end, I just started praying, Lord, Lord, how do we make this personal? How do we make this about you and, and our relationship with you? And so I want to begin with, with this slide. I want to begin by showing you, if we can get that first, that we know God as creator, that is, as Christians, we know God as a creator only through the Son. Now look at this verse with me. Uh, because you would think that I would start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But I would argue that as Christians, we always begin from Christ. It's a Christological perspective. It's special revelation that has come to us through Jesus. It's one thing to look at the, at the created world and, be, and get the sense that there is a God out there, but it is Jesus that makes that God personal and knowable. And so look what it says in Hebrews chapter one, verses two through three. It says, but in these last days, and it, and it, it begins by saying that God at various times and various ways has spoken, 
But in these last days, he has spoken. And if I was to give you the exact Greek, it doesn't even make sense in English. It says spoken to us by his son. In the Greek, it just says spoken to us in son. In other words, the son is the final word of the father. He is the revelation of who God is, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So he is the ruler of everything. And through whom, that is through the son, he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we can't talk about God as creator unless we talk about God also as the sustainer of that creation, and not simply the creator and the sustainer, but also the redeemer and the ruler. Uh, all of those are enfolded when we talk uh, into the idea of God as creator. And we can't really talk about God as the creator unless we come to it through Jesus. And this is why the, the Apostles' Creed is so beautiful and so personal, so relational, so intimate, because it doesn't begin with God created the heavens and the earth, and he is almighty, and because of that, he is father. No, it begins with the fact that through the Son, we know that he is the father. And because he is the eternal father, uh, his power is ruled by his love. And as an outcome of that relational love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he created everything that is. It's a very profound reality. Now, let me just ask you the question, does nature, does scripture declare that nature reveals God? And it does, but I think we need to be careful because no person can come to a saving knowledge of God through nature. When people say, nature is my church, what they mean by that is, I don't go to church uh, because nature is not their church because the church is the communion of men and women, boys and girls who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and brought into a singular family. Jesus being the firstborn over that family. But nature does reveal some things about God. There is general revelation. In fact, Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 20 is very explicit. It says that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So something has come into creation that actually hides God from us, that nature itself is a reflection of God the way a painting is the reflection of a painter. It's not necessarily a personal reality, but it is a general revelation. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so that they are without excuse. The purpose of Romans 1 is to say that God is revealed through his creation, but due to sin, he is hidden. We have been blinded. And what, what Romans does is really profound as Paul is showing that we are blinded by sin and that we need God's intervention, but we need to understand that just because we're blinded by sin doesn't mean that we're not still culpable. That's the point of Romans 1. So there is general revelation. And, and I even think of it in terms of, I, I, was, I remember I, I was at a wedding right after I got saved um, on, uh, across the river from Mount Hood, um, from Hood, excuse me, from Hood River. And I remember it was beautiful uh, vision. And, and I was so zealous and knew just, I discovered Jesus. And I remember it was after I discovered Jesus that the created order began to take on this sort of mystical meaning for me. And I was looking at Mount Hood and it was so beautiful. It looked like a painting. 
And I was sitting next to a gentleman uh, who was a, a, a very, very intense atheist. And, he, and, and I said, man, when I look at that mountain, I just see God's beauty. How could you not believe in God and see that? And he said, he looked at me and he goes, huh, when I look at the mountain, I see a mountain. And I just thought to myself, well, that's sad. <laughs> Obviously, the suppression of truth and the culpability of sin blinds us to the reality that the painting all of a sudden does not have a painter when we are left in our sin and our devices, and it requires a revelation that comes from Jesus. And so I think it's very important that we understand this, that Jesus is the revelation for us as Christians of God as creator. He made the heavens and earth as a testimony to the communion that happens within himself. And I want to just share with you guys this quote before we jump into the three things I want us to consider um, about God as maker of the heavens and the earth. This comes from uh, one of my favorite theologians, a Scottish theologian of the 20th century named Thomas F. Torrance. And he says this about Jesus as the revealer of God. He says, in Jesus Christ, God has become a man as the creator of all things. So Jesus, being the creator of all things, became a creature. He has himself become a creature without, of course, ceasing to be God the creator. This is where he gets really profound. And he therefore interacts creatively with the world, not just from without, but from within. So in Jesus, we creatures might meet with the creator face to face. It's a very profound statement. It's one that's worth thinking about. Uh, if you want that quote, you can email me. I'm happy to send it to you. But it's a beautiful statement that Jesus Christ, who is the creator of all things, that God through him made all things. We can think of, and we can think of the father as the author, Jesus as an actor within the story, uh, and the spirit as the one who moves the story forward. We can think of the Father as the author, Jesus as the mediator, and the Spirit as the life giver. But it is one God revealed in three persons fully involved in the making of all that is. And what I want us to consider today uh, are three things, really the act of creation, the purpose of creation, and finally the goal of creation. So establishing that we learn about God as maker of heaven and earth through the Son, I just want to always, we need that Christological center because it helps it, helps it keep it grounded in the personal, uh, that we discover God as creator uh, by he himself becoming a creature so that we can see God through the face of Christ. So beginning with the act of creation, when we look at this verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, we see this uh, in regards to how the heavens and earth were created. By faith, we understand that the universe was created, what does it say? By the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Again, in John chapter one, verses one through three, connected once again to Jesus as the word in action, the logos, we see in the beginning, which John is mimicking Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here, in the Gospel of John, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you were to read the Bible of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they add um, an unfortunate word, uh, 
and the word was a God, but that does great damage to the Godhead. All, um, all false uh, views in Christianity begin with the diminishment of the deity of Christ. I think it's important to note that. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were what? Made through him, mediated through him. Jesus is the, the creative word of God in action. And without him was not anything made that was made. So we connect these two, ver- these two verses, Hebrews 11, 3. I think it's important that we see that by faith we understand this because what is the beginning of the Apostles' Creed? I what? Believe. <laughs> and faith comes by faith in Christ that he is the author and the finisher of, of, of our faith, that we came to Christ because Christ drew us. Uh, and maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus, but I would say that, we, that, that Jesus, if you're here, is already drawing you by his spirit. And this is because he's a God who's active in his creation. We connect these two passages, though, with the, the first passage in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If I could paraphrase that, uh, with the words of my beloved friend, Tim Mackey. I remember when he first was walking me through Genesis 1 through 11, he says, the best way to understand this, he goes, when we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we have in our minds that picture that we get from the first photos from space. But just remember that that image didn't occur until the 1960s. And so that's probably not what the writer of Genesis had in mind. And he said, probably the best way to, to simplify this verse is to say, back there, God created everything up there and everything down here. And I think that is a pretty clever way of saying that. But I think, once again, in the beginning, even states something that's important for us to understand is that we're talking about a story uh, that is God's redemptive story, that it's a personal story, that it's a powerful story. And so when you look at Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, there is something profound about that because it actually denies many things. Genesis 1.1 denies atheism, for it assumes the being of God. It denies polytheism, for it confesses one eternal creator. It denies materialism, for it asserts the creation of matter. That's really actually an important uh, component, that God created everything out of nothing. It denies pantheism, for it assumes the existence of God before all things, and apart from them. And this is the fascinating thing about the gospel is that the God who creates all that is can never be confused with all that is. And yet through Jesus, he enters into what he's created. The creator becomes a creature. This, something else to actually think about, this, this actually kind of blew my mind because there are certain things, the unchanging God, that is the one who is unchanging in his character, in his nature, in his purposes, in his plans does change. I, he wasn't always the creator, because the creator, to say creator insinuates that he created something. There was a point, he was always the father. He became the creator, and he became Jesus, the human. Uh, and he did those things without changing in his character, in his purposes, in his plans. That, I think that that's something that we should, uh, we should take into consideration. Another reason why the creed begins with God as Father uh, Almighty, who made heaven and earth. Okay. So if I was to give you the most basic explanation of creation, creation in its strict sense 
uh, of the word may be defined as the free act of God, whereby he, according to his sovereign will and for his own glory, in the beginning brought forth the whole visible and invisible universe without the use of preexistent material and thus gave it an existence distinct from his own and yet always dependent upon him. That comes from uh, the systematic theology of Louis Burkhoff. And I, I really, I really, uh, it's really smart, but I really dislike it because it's so dry and boring. And I just want you to know that I suffered through much of that for you. And I just wanted to share that statement with you to show how unhelpful it is. Uh, and so I, I think it's important. There's some basic things that we need to be able to say about God as maker of heaven and earth. And I promise you, I want to draw this into that very pastoral place. But we have to begin with what does scripture say? And I think it's important for us to note that first of all, he created everything out of nothing. When we talk about an artist, uh, we th even think about a carpenter, for example. Uh, a carpenter is dependent upon the materials, the trees. When we talk about God as creator, and by the way, creator or created, God created, that word, uh, um, bara is, is only used of God in the scriptures. So we can't say that we are co-creators with God in the sense that, that the scripture means by God as creator, because it isn't just saying that he created something out of disorganized materials. It's saying that he actually spoke the materials into existence and ordered them. <laughs> and so it's a unique means by which we see the absolute power of God. This is why Romans chapter four, verse 17 says, God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. If you were actually just to read the Genesis account, Genesis chapter one, verse two, it says that there was darkness. There was basically chaos over the waters. And it would, it would almost lead to a dualistic vision of creation that, that God actually brings order to the chaos, which is what he does in that account. Uh, but it is, it is other passages in scripture that tell us that, that before there was anything, there was God and that God created everything out of nothing. And that is fundamental to an orthodox vision of Christianity. In fact, if we say that matter itself is eternal, along with God, we create a dualism uh, that actually is what the church fathers were fighting against because it leads to false ideas about God and about his power. So, once again, the question of whether that's helpful doesn't really matter. What it does state implicitly is that we are dealing with a God who has all power. Now, let me just say that his power serves his love once again, which means that he created everything by speaking it into existence, and that reveals his personality. And this is where I think it becomes, begins to become relatable to us. Every step of the Genesis story God creates by speaking. Uh, in fact, what do you have? It says, and God spoke, and it was so. Uh, so you, what you have is a God who literally has the absolute authority, the God who spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. What does it say right here? We, by faith, understand that the universe was created by the word of God. And what this tells us as a people who believe in one God revealed in three persons is that God within himself is not, is not a detached power, uh, but he is personal power. And that within himself, he is a communion, a community within himself, that there is communication within the Godhead itself. What does it say about the creation of man? Let us make man in our image, that God creates 
that creation itself is the outcome of a conversation. If I could once again borrow from Robert Jensen, that God, the God that we worship, is a very talkative God. And words matter in Scripture. And Scripture declares that God speaks into existence, not only creation, but Israel, that God spoke to us in these final days through his son, that the church itself is the direct result of God's spoken word through Jesus, and that salvation continues to come. How? It says by faith, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. The creative, creative word of God that created the heavens and the earth is the same creative word that continues to save lost men and women and brings about redemption. And this shows this very personal reality that God is a God who speaks. God is the triune God, is in himself the great conversation. That he creates means that Father, Son, and Spirit among themselves mention others than themselves. Isn't that amazing to think about that before the foundation of the world, you and I were a conversation in the Godhead. And before it was spoken out, like there's this, a conversation that puts into motion all that is. The relational reality. And more than that, even, is that God speaks into, creation, into, into reality creation. And what does he call it? What does he call it? Good. He says at the end of day six, that is, at the end of day six, it's very good. Uh, and, and this is profound as well, because what did Jesus say to the young rich ruler? When the young rich ruler came to him, he says, good teacher. And Jesus followed up with, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good. What is Jesus saying to the young rich ruler in that moment? He is saying, you're not good and I am God. He doesn't deny that he's good. He just asks him why he called him good to reveal that there is something fundamentally wrong with what God originally intended. And that is there is the mystery of sin that enters into creation and twists what God said is very good. And we still see the goodness of God in creation, but that goodness has been marred by rebellion. But as we looked at last week, in God's power, he is able to take that rebellion, weave it into his narrative, into his story, and bring about ultimately final and perfect good. And that's a mystery that we must cling to with absolute hope. When God creates, it means that he decides something other than himself is very good. And good in the Hebrew means good for something. <laughs> and I, I really like that. But not only does God, uh, does God bring into existence everything by speaking it into existence, but he sustains creation by the same word. So when we say in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that's not simply a statement for the past. It continues to be a statement moment by moment for all things are held together by him. All things have their origin. What does it say in that verse in Hebrews chapter one, verses two through three? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The same creative word continues to give you and I existence. This is why Paul said that in him, that is in God, we move and breathe and have our being. And when you begin to think about that, that you sit here today as, as the outcome of God's creative word, that your existence is dependent upon his ability to preserve you by his word, it begins to create a lot of awe. Because when you think about the insignificance 
of yourself in light of the expansiveness of the universe and that God keeps you alive (laughs) by the power of his word. And he doesn't just do it for you as a child, as a born again believer, but he does it for the rebel. He does it for the victim and the victimizer. That God's graciousness, that his powerful, creative word upholds the world, even in its rebellion against him, showing that he has a story that he's telling. And as readers of the scripture, we know where the story ends. I think this is important for us on so many levels because we often forget, isn't that the condemnation of Romans chapter one? That they do not glorify God as God, but begin to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And this is what happens is we forget that we owe our existence. Everything we are, everything we have is a gift from him who holds us together by the very power of his word. And that's why people are all poetic about that Jesus, while on the cross, held the nails in place. He never stopped being creator, but he allowed himself to fully feel the frailty of human existence. He sustains the creation by the same word. This is why Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We exist by, the, by his word. And I think the third thing that we can really learn from, uh, from creation is that it is indeed his history. The world, crea- the world God creates is not simply a cosmos, but it is also a history. And because it has a beginning, we can assume that it has an end, a completion. And if you look even at the, the, the narrative of Scripture, we see the history being played out. We see the history with his creation, with the call of Abraham, with the exodus, with the crucifixion, with the resurrection, and even the final judgment are not events within a creation. They are the events of the history that is created. And so the doctrine of creation and redemption should be developed. And this is the thing that I want us to begin to focus on. Both the doctrine of creation and redemption should work together. And unfortunately, I think over time, they've been treated as very separate doctrines. Uh, But we need to believe uh, that God created us, that he might redeem us through Jesus, if I could borrow from the words of Luther himself. So this is the act of creation. But what is its purpose? If we were to move forward, if you look at this verse, uh, there are two verses I want us to consider because they show us two facets or two purposes of creation. And these two purposes are often split into camps within Christianity. On one camp, you see that people say, God created the heavens, uh, the heavens and the earth uh, as the display of his glory and nothing else. And on the other side, you say, no, God, out of his love and his goodness, he created everything for our good. So is it for his glory or our good? And I would say that scripture says, yes. <laughs> Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it, here's a purpose, to be what? Inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. But then you see in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, he is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus again, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or all authorities, all things were created through him and what? For him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Well, let's, let's begin with his creation and us being at the center of that, that he created all that is for our good. Because he did create us at the center of his creation to be uh, representatives of him, that he made us in his image. In fact, if you were to look at the biblical doctrine of creation, it's centrally a doctrine of the creation of life. In day six, we're told in Genesis chapter one, verses 27 through 30, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. What do we find in this passage. First of all, God speaks the universe into existence as command. But when it comes to human beings who are made in his image, it becomes a conversation. The conversation within himself now becomes a conversation that you and I are invited into. And he says, I have placed you at the center of creation to be image bearers, to be representatives of me to the creation. Now, this is something that is profound. This is why the psalmist says, what is man? What, is, what does it mean to be human that you are mindful, O God, of us? And it should be a humbling reality that the one who spoke the universe into existence created all that is for our good. has placed us at the center of it. And why? Once again, because his power serves his love. And his love creatively chooses as it creates is a revelation of his goodness. Humans, we may say, are those animals whose creation is not merely that God speaks about them, but he speaks with them, inviting them into covenant relationship. What is it that sin did? When sin entered into the creation story, the very first thing that was broken was relationship with God. And that relationship with God that was broken became not only a broken relationship with God, but also relationship with one another and ultimately human beings became an enigma to themselves. And we see this being played out all around us still, right? So God created the heavens and the earth to be inhabited. He created it for us. What is man that you are mindful of him? I have given you dominion over the created order. It's powerful. And all we have to do is just look to the incarnation to see that God could have become anything he wanted. It shows that humanity is the centerpiece of creation because God didn't come into, the, into, the create, into his own creation and become a horse. He became a man. As the Nicene Creed says, which I think is a really helpful creed, it says, for our good, God became a man. And it is for our good that he died as a man. And it is for our good that he rose from the dead as a man. And it is for our good that he ascended to the right hand of heaven as a man, where he will continue to be a man for all of eternity. The unchanging God changed, revealing that God indeed created the heavens and the earth for us. 
But that doesn't diminish the fact that scripture is very clear that he also created it for his own glory. And I think we have to be careful. And I think that Jonathan Edwards actually is the great Puritan reform theologian that kept that healthy balance that God, yes, indeed created everything for his own glory, but that he is glorified when his creatures enjoy him, are in right relationship with him because we are the centerpiece of his creation. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Here in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, that everything was created through him, through Jesus and for him. I think a great picture of creation as a theater of his glory, if I could borrow from John Calvin. By the way, I have been trying to read through the Institutes and it's just, it makes me feel really dumb and it's super long. So I've read enough to pull out this one line that I really like, the, theo, the theater of his glory. Uh, he is brilliant, holy smokes. Uh, I like this. Uh, there's a Catholic, actually, theologian of the 20th century named Hans Urs von Balthasar. And he says this about God as creator and why God created for, and how his glory is revealed through creation. He says, if such a world is freely created by God, apart from any compelling need, he didn't need to make us. He didn't have to create us. He didn't have to become a creator. Then this occurs from the viewpoint of the father in order to glorify the beloved son. And many theologians say that God created all that is that he might provide a bride for his son. That you and I were created for the pleasure of the son. That we will not find our happiness until we are in right relationship with the son. But he goes on to say, from the viewpoint of the loving son, in order to lay everything as a gift at the father's feet. Because aren't we told that there will be a point where everyone will bow the knee to Jesus that, and Jesus will in turn turn everything over to God, the Father, that God may be all in all. Mysterious verse. And from the viewpoint of the Spirit, in order to lend new expression to the reciprocal love that is between the Father and Son. Hence, the one triune God is creator of the world. The world is a theater of God's glory. I love that statement by Calvin. I think it's powerful. But I think it's important that we understand that yes, God created all that is for his glory, but he is glorified, if I could borrow from the Westminster Catechism, that he is glorified. Uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So there's the purpose of creation. But what about the goal of creation? Look at Romans chapter eight, verses 18 through 22. Because this gives us a revelation of something because we've been talking about creation is good, but we also recognize that the world is not all that we, all that we think it ought to be. In Romans chapter eight, verses 18 through 22 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, something's entered into God's good creation that has brought about suffering, evil, something that is not a part of God's good design, but God has permitted in for his sovereign purposes and has the ability to work through it this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Notice the goal of creation is a revelation of, of, of the finish of the story where the new heavens and the new earth will come as Jesus is truly recognized as Lord of all. For the creation was subjected to futility, and there you have it, Something entered into it that brought futility upon it. 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This brings an interesting component uh, to an understanding of God as maker of the heavens and the earth. And what this shows us is that we cannot separate God's redemptive purposes from his creative purposes. That redemption and creation belong together. Luther's large catechism, which I read this week, and it actually is really beautiful. uh, God created us in order to redeem us. You and I are here to play roles in Jesus' story and all the universe provides the stage and the props. Theologians and philosophers have debated through the ages whether this world is the best possible one since it was created by God who is at the same time perfectly good and all-powerful. And that's really the question. Even, Even Chesterton talks about that in Orthodoxy, how the world today is like the ruins of a once beautiful castle. We see its potential, but there's something fundamentally wrong with it. Uh, and I think that, that here we see that, that the creation is subjected to futility, uh, not willingly, willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. And what I would say about that question, if I could borrow from Donald Blush, is that the world is neither the best nor the worst possible world, but it is the best way to the best possible world the kingdom of glory that will usher in the transfigured heaven and earth, the vision of the best possible world already exists within God. This is why I say it's his history. He is telling a story. He has, for whatever reason, we can't explain why evil exists. I fully hold fast to the statement I made last week. There is no acceptable theodicy. We cannot explain why, how God can both be good and perfect and all-powerful in control of human history and allow evil into history. All we can say is from Scripture is that God is against evil wherever it is found and that he had absolute victory over it on the cross and that victory will be seen in its fullness when Jesus returns. That I can tell you from the story. But he will will have to wait till we meet him. Like Job, when Job wants to know why he suffered, God says, were you there when I made the heavens and the earth? No, I accept his goodness. And this is why I say that we can't come to God as creator until we come through the son. In fact, Maximus Confessor, he is one of the uh, patristic fathers, said, the one who knows the mystery of the cross and the tomb knows the reasons of things. The one who is initiated into the infinite power of the resurrection knows the purpose for which God knowingly created all. And so when I say the goal of creation is the close of the story, I would say that this passage right here goes on to speak that we ourselves groan within us as children of God. And if we're children of God, then we are co-heirs with Christ. And if all of creation is made for him, then what this tells us about creation is something super profound. And this is where I want, I want to land the plane. This is so important. For God to create is for him to make accommodation in his own triune life. The fact that God created means that he has invited you and I to participate in his divine life. 
And we can say, I don't understand why evil exists. And all I can say is, because of Jesus, I can say, there's a mystery there. But whatever game he's playing, in the words of Dorothy Sayers, he has played fair and taken his own medicine. I trust the goodness of God because I have met his son, Jesus. And Jesus, entering into creation, the creator becomes creature, taking into himself the brokenness, the futility of the world, that he might bring freedom to us. We must cling to the fact that we are moving toward an ultimate goal. And what is that goal? And that goal is found in John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. I have created a place for you. I have created an accommodation for you. I want to invite you into my life. So I trust his story. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Creation is above all God taking time for us because God is the Lord of time, created time. And think of that in terms of personal uh, reality. He created time for us. As a good father, the thing that my wife and my kids want more than anything from me is quality what? Time. God created time for us. He invites us into his life. He accommodates us in his very personhood. This is the purpose of creation, that we might be glorified with Christ in relationship with him forever. And so what should it mean for us to be a part of this creation sustained by God? What it should mean for us are these three things, that we should be worshipers of him. Psalm 33, verses 8-9, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. You are here as the outcome of his powerful word. And it's not just a command for you to exist, but it's a conversation for you to enter into. And that, is, that conversation is found in worship. Worship begins in submission, is initiated by the Spirit, is defined by truth and expressed in love. And we must recognize that God has created us for his glory and, he, and we will be happiest and fulfilled when we submit to him and worship him as the creator of all that is, as the heavenly Father who is almighty, revealed to us through his Son by the power of his Spirit. We should rest in him. So many people are plagued with anxieties and fears about the world that we live in. And believe me, I get it. I read the news and I freak out. It's crazy. Everything is crazy this week. Would you agree? Everything's crazy right now. Uh, everything's upside down on its head. Another tsunami hits. You crazy, crazy political insanities of our country. Uh, I don't even know what, I just know I'm moving to Canada next year. I don't know if their president's good, but he's handsome. <laughs> that has nothing to do with resting in him. <laughs> Matthew 10, verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Someone came up to me and said, but how many sparrows? <laughs> I'm like, it's a good question. Uh, but the point is, is that we can trust that God has a story that he's telling and it has a finish and the finish is good. 
And he's invited you and I to be a part of that redemptive story. And his redemption is directly connected to his creation. And his creation is groaning and awaiting the day of its reconciliation. And we need to be a people that reflect his shalom, his restfulness. And we rest in him when we know that we have been made by him for him and that we can trust our, entrust our lives to him. Did you know what it's like to be fearful that you've tried to control your life? I, I know what it's like as a, as a dad, when my kids were first, when Henry and Hattie were little, I used to be so fearful for their safety. And, I, and I've started to become convicted. I realized I didn't trust God with my kids. I'm like, oh, he's ruler of the creation, but he cannot keep my kids safe. And I think that we often live with that kind of fear, that paralyzing fear. And that is not the victory that we are called to as Christians. And recognizing that God is the creator who sustains everything by the power of his word. That we can trust Jesus when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That he means what he says. Finally, we should trust in him. As I share with you that he makes accommodation for us, there we have it again. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. You know where Jesus says that? What's so powerful about that? Why we can trust him? One who's made accommodation for us is he tells Peter that right after he tells Peter he'll deny him three times. Literally, that's the first verse that comes after. It's, a, it's an unfortunate chapter break because the power of that statement is that he says it to one who's about to deny him. Trust in me. Let not your heart be troubled. I know you're broken. I know you'll deny me in your life. I know you're going to make mistakes, but it's the whole reason that I entered into my creation to bring redemption to it so that no one can say that my good plans are not good because it may seem like there's darkness mixed into that plan, but I promise you, in the end, I will wipe away every tear. This is the promise of Scripture, and this is what it means when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Amen?